My name is Alex Patterson. I'm the Executive Director of Canada 2020. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, this is the second event that we have done with the Independent Senators Group, uh, and we thought it was important because at the start of a sort of a, a new configuration in the House of Commons, uh, it's so much has changed since the last time Senator Wu and I have had a chance to chat uh, that we wanted to sort of check in, uh, understand some of the changes, understand where it might be headed. Uh, and so to, to do that today, uh, we're joined by uh, uh, Senators uh, Yun Pao Wu and Senator Raymond Saint-Germain, and uh, our moderator today is uh, David Mosscrop. So I will uh, rely on your support right now to welcome our panel to the stage with a round of applause as we hand things over to David. So David. Um, I'm always very, very eager to get deep into it, but we have uh, a presentation to begin. It's nice to see some familiar faces in the room from um, just over a year ago. And those of you who were in the room when I gave my previous presentation will remember that I went through a, a deck of maybe eight, nine slides, uh, going into some detail on the uh, process of uh, change towards a more independent, less partisan Senate. So in a sense, this uh, year's presentation is an update, a status report. It's a much shorter deck. Uh, for the very reason that we want to get to the questions that David has for us and have some dialogue rather than to have a uh, more of a one-way conversation. So let me just get right to the uh, next slide, which um, will give you a bit of a timeline of uh, the changes to the Senate starting um, not in 2016, uh, not well, strictly in 2016, but we, as you can see, have predated the reforms to the Senate to 2014 with the release of, of course, the uh, Supreme Court uh, reference um, document on uh, how they saw the Senate and what they thought uh, were the possibilities for various uh, fundamental Senate reforms. And I go back to the 2014 Supreme Court document because it really does provide uh, a very strong rationale for what the Prime Minister has since done which is to try to return the Senate to what the Supreme Court believes is its original intent to be a uh, more of an independent, non-partisan, to use the cliché, chamber of sober second thought. And uh, for those uh, in the public who are still uh, sceptical or uh, who think that the reforms are somehow not grounded in a constitutional reality and in some kind of legal basis, uh, we, I think the 2014 Supreme Court document provides very much of that grounding. Of course, uh, it didn't come to uh, fruition or implementation till uh, the first Trudeau administration. Ramon and I are in the first cohort of senators who, were, who went through the full process, if you will, of the um, the arm's length selection committee and then the, the appointment process. And since then, the Prime Minister has appointed uh, many other independent senators. And I won't go through in detail the rest of the timeline, but you see um, the formation of the independent senators group, uh, the, some changes in rules uh, of the Senate to recognize um, independent senators group alongside the government, the opposition, and alongside political caucuses. This is quite a major move. And also the recognition that 
uh, groups other than the government and opposition, other than caucuses, deserve uh, some standing and uh, uh, privileges in the Senate. I'll come back to that theme because we haven't finished the reforms that are necessary to give non-caucuses, groups such as the ISG, all of the privileges and benefits that are enjoyed by just the government and the opposition. So a number of rule changes over the period 2016-17. We uh, adopted a charter in 2018. This was one of the first priorities that uh, Senator Saint-Germain and I uh, brought to our first mandate as facilitators. Uh, We felt that the ISG needed some structure and some, some rules, if you will. We were very clearly not going to model ourselves uh, after political caucuses, but nevertheless, we had to function in a way that was transparent and accountable and which um, our members could, uh, could understand. And then uh, we, uh, by the time we reached the end of 2018, with the new appointments uh, to the Senate, we achieved a majority in the Senate and we continue to have a majority in the upper house. Now, we stopped the timeline in 2018 because the next slide will give you a sense of what happened in 2019, which was, of course, a very short Senate year for us. Uh, we rose, of course, uh, by the end of June and we, we didn't sit again till the, uh, after the election in December. And I won't go into a lot of detail, uh, but broadly speaking, I just want to highlight what some of the, you might say, the fruits of a more independent Senate have been, particularly uh, in the last year. And when I, when I go through these items, I don't want to give the impression that the Senate before independent senators did none of these things. Uh, this is not about... Um, independent senators coming to the upper house and saving the, the upper house in some way or uh, having, um, having virtuous uh, motives and intentions and actions that nullify or uh, contradict anything that was done in the past. But it is about a different way of doing things and I do strongly believe that a Senate that is organized differently, particularly if it's organized along non-partisan more independent lines, does produce different results. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be an independent senator. And some of the uh, benefits, you might say, and the results of a more independent senate are the ones we've put up on this slide. Clearly, less partisanship, which doesn't mean that senators don't have political views. And maybe we'll get that into that in the discussion. All of us have views on any given issue and have perhaps political philosophies But independent senators, particularly in the ISG, do not affiliate with a political party and certainly do not belong to a party caucus and therefore don't take instructions from the leader of any given party and certainly not from the prime minister. We think there is some greater efficiency and transparency and accountability, even though this is an area where there are a lot more work has to be done. And uh, Senator Sanjaman in particular, I think, will touch on one of those areas uh, in the next slide. There's certainly increased diversity in the composition of the Senate. Uh, I'm thinking about um, First Nations representation, for example, but also representation from minority groups across the country. 
Very importantly, we have learned that the public supports the new approach to the Senate. We've conducted, uh, my colleague, I should say, Senator Dasko, uh, commissioned the national opinion poll on public opinions about the Senate, and we find uh, 77 to 80 percent of the Canadian public supports both the appointment process, the arm's length process where you can apply to be a senator or be nominated, and again, 80% of the population supports the appointment of senators as non-affiliators, as independents. In fact, only 3% of the Canadian public, according to this poll, would like to return to the old model of Senate appointments. And uh, finally, and not trivially at all, uh, we think that the more independent Senate has resulted in... Um, a larger number of improvements to bills that have come to us. In fact, there has been a record number of not only amendments proposed, but amendments accepted. I believe our success rate, if you put it the way, is about 60%, uh, 200-plus amendments that were accepted out of uh, something like 400-plus amendments that were proposed to government bills. Next slide will tell you what the agenda is for the further reform slash modernization of the upper chamber. And this is um, something that the Independent Senators Group uh, has been working on for some time now uh, in the last parliament to identify and prioritize what we think are the three or four or five uh, items that we should try to push for in terms of moving further towards this idea of the Senate as it should have been, as it should be. And broadly speaking, there are two themes in something we call our 50-day plan for uh, further Senate modernization. And uh, it may sound rather grandiose. I assure you that these are really very modest and commonsensical changes that we're proposing. And they fall in the two categories as follows. First one is the equality of senators and the equality of recognized Senate groups. It should be, a, as they say, a no-brainer, but that not, does not yet exist in the Senate because there are, first of all, a number of rules in the Senate that give privilege and preference to just the government and the opposition and not other groups. Even if one of those other groups happens to be the largest group and in fact constitutes the majority of senators. Likewise, in statute, the statute that uh, uh, creates the foundation for the constitution or the makeup of the Senate, this is called the Parliament of Canada Act, similarly identifies and recognizes and gives privilege to only the government and the opposition without any uh, similar recognition and uh, acknowledgement of uh, groups other than the government of opposition. So these are really very commonsensical changes that need to be done to rules and to statute, which in some ways simply codify and make de, de jure what is already a de facto reality in the Senate, but they have to be done. The second uh, set of uh, modernization initiatives comes under the category of the better functioning of the Senate, and uh, Senate organizational reform. 
Let me just quickly touch on two of them, and I'm going to turn to Senatrice uh, for some comments on the Audit and Oversight Committee. Uh, when it comes to the Programming Committee, this is an idea that, again, I think is commonsensical in every organization that I've been in, and I'm sure in all the organizations, well-functioning organizations that you may be part of, there's a planning process. There's a sense of uh, what are priorities, what are the deadlines, when you do A, which leads to B, which leads to C, and that simply makes it possible for things to be done in a more orderly and efficient manner, and it makes it possible, in the case of the Senate, for senators to plan their time and to prioritize uh, their speeches and their interventions and their research on any given bill. We, generally speaking, do not have such a thing in the Senate. And this is, of course, a function of uh, partly tradition and partly, maybe you might say, philosophy or ideology. We think, we think the time has come to introduce some modest planning that allows us to understand the arrival and passage and ultimately the, the, uh, the delivery or passing on of the bill, of all bills, so that we can work in a more efficient manner. On budget reform, this is an uh, issue very close to the hearts of many independent senators. We're very conscious of the, um, the cost to Canadian taxpayers. We think Canadian taxpayers get good value, but all the same, we always have to be very vigilant about how we spend our money and what we've observed in the budgeting process for how funds are allocated to the different groups is that it doesn't correspond to any particular uh, logic or rhyme or reason. The, the amounts are largely uh, ad hoc. They do not have any kind of uh, zero-based or other kind of justification for them. Uh, there may be a historical justification for some of these budgets, but it's time for a review and a time for us to start to provide some structure and rationale for the budgets of all the groups, including the government, uh, the political caucuses and the groups other than political caucuses. Let me just turn to Senatrice for some comments on the um, Audit and Oversight Committee. Thank you. Allow me, please, some comments before I will speak further uh, regarding the Audit and Oversight Committee. We may look the merit-based appointed senators as self-righteous, and we don't want to look like that because this is not who we are and how we want to work with the other uh, caucus and groups. I say caucus singular because there is now uh, only one caucus, which is the conservative caucus, and the others uh, who were created are groups, including ourselves, uh, the independent senator group, uh, senator's group. Uh, before us were appointed outstanding senators. I have in mind... Uh, Senator Dallaire, former uh, General Dallaire, who was a member of the Conservative Caucus. Art Eagleton, a member of the former mayor of Toronto, former minister. He was a member of the Liberal Caucus, and I can name many, many others. So it's very important that you realize that we are very respectful of our colleagues, those who were there prior, uh, prior us, and those who are still sitting with us in the Senate. I would say the main difference or the, the main improvement is that now we are not linked to a political party in the other place, in the House of Commons, and we are not feeling like we have to pay for 
having rewarded by a senator position after having raising funds, uh, campaigning for a political party, and so on. And this is very important. We don't feel that we, our vote in each and every bill uh, is uh, obligatory, is mandatory, and is uh, a compensation for something that we received. Uh, on the Audit and Oversight Committee, I'm sure that you all know about the Auditor General's report on the Senate. You don't even need to know about the Senate to be aware of this report because it was really uh, made very, very public. Uh, I will first say that this report uh, was way uh, too costly uh, with regard to the uh, observations and uh, the conclusions of the Auditor General. That being said, uh, there was a need for improvements in the Senate, in the governance of the Senate, especially the administrative governance of the Senate. Many of these improvements were made before 2015 by uh, the then two caucuses who were there, the Liberals and the Conservatives, but there are still improvements to be made. Uh, the idea of an audit and oversight committee was, uh, is not only the idea or the recommendation of the, the Auditor General, it's also the idea of both caucus and groups that are still uh, sitting in the Senate. Uh, the tricky issue there is that normally in a public institution we would have an audit and oversight committee formed by three, five or seven, whatever the number of senators, who would be very transparent and, you know, we would trust these senators. But because of the bad reputation, which is partly unfair, I repeat it, and I wasn't there before, uh, because of this bad, bad reputation, we need to overdo. We need to prove to the Canadians, to Canadians that we have improved and that we will be very transparent. This is why we have tabled a motion in order to accelerate the process uh, for having this audit and oversight committee in a very, very uh, hybrid way, which is very, uh, I would say, unique and uh, avant-gardiste, we would have three senators sitting in this committee alongside with two lay members, and those lay members will have uh, the opportunity to table their report, their own report, or to have their report as an appendix of the uh, audit and and, and oversight committee as, as an appendix, sorry, of the senators, the three senators' views, and this report would be made public. Furthermore, this audit and oversight committee, but for a few exceptions, would sit uh, on camera, would sit publicly, which is very, very exceptional. So I do believe that it will uh, contribute to uh, have the population, to have Canadians uh, more uh, impressed by the way the Senate is working and uh, it would give us the opportunity to demonstrate that we have a good governance and that we are very, very transparent. We will soon study uh, a motion uh, about that. I do believe that 
I don't want to speak for the other groups and even for the ISG because we will have comments and some senators within our own group uh, may amend the motion, but this idea of an audit and oversight committee doesn't pertain to the ISG. Even before we were there, uh, the conservatives, the liberals, they had this same idea. We have worked closely with them at, at CBA, which is the internal board, and uh, we... Uh, we are just pressing for this committee to be uh, created and to be uh, working, to be empowered uh, as soon as possible. So I believe that uh, we will be successful and that this will be another uh, reason for which uh, the Senate will be uh, a more credible institution. Well, thank you. Let's move on to the context of minority parliament. You know, the, there were more amendments than ever, more successful amendments than ever in the majority parliament, but also a handful of showdowns, including the Transportation Bill, uh, the Budget Implementation Act, uh, Indigenous status, uh, the tanker ban, and, of course, uh, everyone's favorite, uh, C-69, uh, which stole the year from many people, and, in fact, stole a year from many people. And, and yet there were no defeated bills. But what about in a minority parliament where the relationship in the House is certainly going to be more fractious, and perhaps in the Senate as well, how will the, an independent or a more independent Senate navigate a minority parliament? Shall I start, Raymond, and please uh, jump in? Well, thank you, uh, David, for the question. Let me, first of all, uh, say that the measure of a successful Senate, particularly a Senate that is more independent, should not be seen purely through the lens of how senators vote and whether or not bills, government bills, are passed or defeated. And you only have to think of a counterfactual to realize that this is the case, because if, if you had given a different summary if in an alternate history you had said to this audience here, oh yeah, in the last parliament, the Senate defeated 60% of government bills, would that be a measure of our success? Obviously not. Obviously not. So I in, instead tend to focus on what I call the arc of legislative review. And the arc of legislative review is the process by which senators receive bills, they prepare for them, debate them in the chamber, debate them in committee, get expert testimony from witnesses far and wide, uh, talk to the regions and the constituencies that they represent. It includes the, the public outreach that senators do on any given bill. It includes amendments to bills, some which get through and some which don't. And, of course, it also includes the final vote. But to focus just on the final vote, I think, is very uh, misleading. On the question of how we might or should behave in the minority parliament, uh, minority government situation, the short answer is the Senate is unchanged. Our mandate is the same. And everything I described earlier about the arc of legislative review has to be done regardless of the structure of the House of Commons it would be dereliction of our duty for us to be any less rigorous and any less willing to propose amendments that we think might improve a bill. Now, this is not a threat. This is simply doing our job. This is what the Prime Minister asks us to do. 
And I want to stress that in some senses, a minority government situation where there's horse trading in the House and political deals, you know, in order for a bill to get out of the House, might in some senses make it even more important for the Senate to then layer on, again, the cliché, sober second thought, to make sure that the political deal-making is not detrimental to the interests of Canadians at large or to the interests of minority groups in this country. Very briefly, I'll only add, uh, you know this expression, the tyranny of the majority? When it is a minority government, it is possible that the compromises that uh, would have been made in the House of Commons would be improvements to the original bill that the government crafted or tabled. We will have, our, our role is the same, our duty is the same. So we'll have a look at it, and if vulnerable people, regions are well represented, most probably that we won't have to table as many amendments. But the conclusion then should not be, well, the Senate was, you know, uh, compromising because it's a minority government. No, we would have done our job, and perhaps that the improvements that we would have done would have been made by the House of Commons. But at the same time, a minority government doesn't mean in any way that we will be robbers tampers of the uh, government bills. Under what conditions might the Senate defeat a bill? Oh, it has to be an unconstitutional bill because we're not elected. That's another point, and this is why we're not elected. But given especially the, 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 the tyranny of the majority in, in a majority situation, uh, it might happen that the Senate would find that a bill uh, is not constitutional. And uh, for given its impact on the population, we would then defeat the government. But it's really, really uh, something that is very theoretical. And as far as I know, it never happened. I think so. It never happened. Twice. Or it happened twice. Very rarely. Very rarely. So well, not in our time. Not in our time. No, the, the Senate defeated Mulroney's abortion bill, I think, most recently. Is that true? Someone, someone must know that. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it would be extraordinary. Yes. Uh, not that I would ever expect that the government would pass any unconstitutional laws. I mean, there's no evidence of that, is there? Um, and if I may, uh, if it happens, the government would have done that against the advice of his uh, internal lawyers, which would be very, very uh, concerning. So let's let's take the, the logic of the independent Senate uh, to its conclusion. Say over the course of the next several years... Uh, the model holds, the Senate becomes increasingly independent, it becomes increasingly emboldened as an independent body. Is there a risk that that independence becomes overextended, that you can say, well, look, uh, we're, we're appointed by an independent process, it's not partisan, we don't owe anyone anything, uh, we're going to fill in the gaps where the government has failed. Uh, is there a danger that you get a pushback that uh, in a couple of years people saying, well, you know what, you've gone too far. You've gone from, from being cronies... Um, which is the sort of the epithet and critique of the old model, to being de facto MPs? 
Well, this is why I stress that the measure of our success should not be simply in how we vote, and certainly not measured by the number of bills we defeated. It should be measured, as I said, by the arc of legislative review, and I'm hoping that Canadians in general will pay more attention to the work of Senate through the entire cycle of how we review a bill. When you say that uh, in a future Senate uh, independent members may feel emboldened to say, I think the words you use are something like, you know, we're not, we don't owe anybody anything or we're not accountable to anybody. That's not true. We are accountable to the oath that, of office that we took. And it is to serve the broader interests of Canadians representing our regions and paying special attention to minorities for the long-term good of the country. That will never change. And as long as Canadians understand that, and understand that they are a complementary chamber to the House, not a competitive chamber, I don't see any particular risk of us overstepping our bounds. If anything, again, based on what we know about public opinion so far, I think the Canadian public wants us to continue down this direction of being a little more assertive, perhaps, if I can put it that way. And we are very far, I think, from uh, overstepping the boundaries. And we have to understand what's the purview of the Senate and what, what's your, our duty. We're not elected. And, you know, the, the principle of deference, we need to defer to uh, the elected uh, chamber, which is the House of Commons, because they represent the will of the electorate of Canadians. So it's important that we realize that we're there to improve, to try to get a better balance for minorities, vulnerable people, regions, and so on. We recommend our amendments to, to the, the other place and to the government, and then it's up to them to, to make their decision, and they will be judged by the electorate at the next election. Yeah, I mean, to use my, I mean I'm an editorial writer, so I'm going to very briefly use my uh, moderator's prerogative to editorialize. I mean, when, when I was writing about the Senate last year, one of the things I found that the value adds include amending bills, um, including saying to the government, you might want to deal with this later at the department level in the regulations, but we'd like to see it in the bill. Governments love to try to sneak things through without that scrutiny. Testing constitutionality, but also studies. One of the things I admire about the studies, and if you think about democracy as a system rather than an election in a house of commons, you have courts, you have the Senate, uh, you have departments, you have activists, you have protests, you have all kinds of things. One of the roles of the Senate is to put things on the agenda that the House of Commons, for the love of God, doesn't want to touch. Uh, be assisted dying, for instance, or marijuana, because they're terrified of an electorate that's fickle, picky, and, um, and volatile. So has the independent Senate changed in terms of how studies are conducted? We'll start with Senator Saint-Germain. I would say... In terms of studies are conducted, perhaps not, but the broader spectrum of the, the uh, topics for studies has changed because uh, we have a, a greater diversity in the profile of senators. We have scientists, we have medical doctors, we have engineers, uh, social workers, uh, former civil servants, a few of them, by the way, I'm one of them. But uh, so it broadens the, the scope. Uh, I have to say, though, that we still have a challenge, which is the one of uh, being more transparent on the way 
we welcome lobbyists, both in our offices and when we uh, inquire. We, uh, lobbying is perfectly legal. My point is not that. But when we are influenced and we give time and uh, we listen to groups, we need to know who they represent, how they are funded, and Canadians need to know about that as well. So we, there, are, there is still room for, for improvement. But I do believe that the way uh, the inquiries and the reports of the Senate committees are done are the same. And uh, so far, for the last 20 years, a lot of very interesting studies were made, and avant-garde studies, as you, as you uh, said, were made by the Senate, including the one of uh, assisted dying. If I could jump in on some more contemporary uh, Senate committee studies, I'm very proud of all my colleagues from all the different groups and caucuses for work they've done on uh, studies in the last parliament, and just to cite uh, two uh, which are now coming back in the headlines, I think, in part because of the work they did. One is on open banking, and uh, there's going to be a government report coming out or has just come out on open banking. I think the Senate, in many ways, provided the impetus, the push for the government to then respond. And you can be sure that there's going to be follow-up on this whole question of open banking, which started uh, with the work of our committee and, of course, the, the banking committee. Another study from the Agriculture and Forest Committee on value added in the agri-food sector has been picked up very widely uh, in, the, uh, in the scholarly community and in the uh, food processing sector. There's a meeting next week, I believe, all the deans of the agricultural and uh, veterinary faculties of, of Canadian universities are coming to town and they've asked to meet to discuss this report because they are so enamored by it and so supportive of its recommendations. And there are many other studies I can cite. I won't go into them, but there's two more to mention quickly, one on the Arctic and another on charities. These are special committees that were set up, ad hoc committees, and they've also had a tremendous impact. I want to pick up on the question of, of lobbying. You know, I remember that... Uh, uh, senator Mitchell, it might have been last year, the year before, was the most lobbied senator and proud of it. Uh, he would very publicly say as much. Uh, I talked to him about it for a piece, and he had said, look, uh, how else do you expect us to talk to people? Which seemed like a fairly good point to me. Uh, but, but lobbying has gone up quite a bit under the new Senate, as, as lobbyists say, well, there's another door that's open. There are new opportunities. Uh, now, frankly, I trust lobbyists and senators more together than I trust uh, MPs and, and lobbyists for reasons related to elections, let's say. Um, but uh, nonetheless, there, there, there is concern that the Senate is being lobbied and that the lines of accountability aren't necessarily clear. So let's start with, with Senator uh, Saint-Germain again. Uh, how has the, the new Senate adapted to increased lobbying? I'll be very transparent. I think that we still need to adapt, to better adapt to lobbying. But uh, once again, lobbying is legal. But it's the ethical side of it uh, which I'm preoccupied with because uh, someone will say you, it's naive to, be, to believe that uh, you, you won't be influenced by anyone in your uh, analysis of a bill or in an inquiry. But it's important to know that some lobbyists uh, 
uh, are not well documented, well substantiated, and they are arguing with uh, information or uh, documents that are not factual, that are not uh, scientifically proven. So we need to be very cautious uh, in uh, being influenced by, by people. So we need to be more transparent. Even in the committees, senatorial committees, when we receive lobbyists, we should ask them to be more transparent themselves on who they represent, uh, who are their counselors? Uh, where does does their funding come from? So this is an improvement that I believe that we, we should work very hard on it. At the same time, we need to look for a balance. It's easy for well-organized lobbyists to access us. They are in Ottawa. They will pay reception at hotels and so on. By the way, I don't go... Uh, at such receptions, because when I, I want to meet a lobbyist or someone who has a view on a bill, it's not around a drink. It's in my office on the basis of documents and on the bill. But we need to make sure that less well-organized or even not very well-organized groups, community groups, NGOs have also access to us. We have to reach out to them. It's important to find this balance. So we need to improve on, on these ways, according to me. Well. <laughs> so let's look to the future. Uh, we've seen a little bit of movement at the Senate caucus and group level. We've seen the formation of the Canadian senators group. We've seen the uh, temporary life of the progressive senators group. Uh, and now they're back to being unofficial. Uh, the ISG has a, a, has a majority, 50 out of uh, the 97 or 98 seats that are appointed. Uh, but will that hold? I mean, do we expect new caucuses to emerge, old caucuses and groups to fall and so on, or groups to, to emerge? And, and as a corollary to that, might we see the rise of, of regional representation, which was effectively the, the initial model of the Senate background at the time of Confederation, or meant to be at least? Well, what I would say is that um, the, the math of the Senate composition is... Uh, can be measured through retirements and you, anyone just looking at the retirement dates will, will know that uh, there will be uh, departures from, from all groups, particularly from the conservative caucus. And so that group will continue to diminish. Uh, this is not a value judgment. This is a statement of fact, unless, of course, there's a change in government and we return to a different process. And I can't predict that. But what we do know is that the recent developments around the formation of the Canadian Senators Group is in the same direction and, to my mind, the right direction in terms of senators organizing themselves along the lines of similar philosophies or values or uh, interests, but in a non-political, non-caucus-oriented way. The Canadian Senators Group is a group of like-minded individuals. Uh, I won't speak for them, but they, they share a certain view of the world and Canadian society, but they are not tied to a political caucus. They don't take instructions from any political party. And that is the intent of a more independent Senate. So to the extent that we'll have more such groups form, I don't know if it will happen, if it's in this direction, then... That's the intent of the reforms, and we should celebrate that. Uh, I'll comment only on two points. The first one, uh, 
the, of, the opposition in the Senate, we don't, we the independents, are not working in a way that there's no longer a conservative caucus or an opposition caucus in the Senate. We're working for the recognition, the fair recognition of other groups. That's my first point. And uh, my second point is about the part of your, of your question which is related to uh, the future of the groups. Uh, I, I do believe that regional divisions of groups in the Senate would not be very functional. We all, we're all representing our region, and at the same time, we have to work in the best interest of the country. And if, if we create, let's say, 13 groups, including the territories, we'll have sometimes 13 opposing groups. This wouldn't be functional, so I don't believe that the regional division of groups would be efficient, while I still believe that we all have a regional responsibility to promote and defend when needed our regions. So let's wrap. We'll go to questions in just a minute, but I want to I close out on the question of the future of the Senate. Now, of course, we, none of us can prognosticate with any certainty, but one senator once said to me, the best thing Stephen Harper ever did for Senate reform was not appoint any senators. Because, of course, I don't know what he thought was going to happen that the Senate would just stop. I, I don't know what his end game was then. Uh, it's possible he didn't have one. But uh, he, there were all of these vacancies, and that opened the door to reform the Senate and appoint a bunch of folks under the independent model. Uh, Andrew Scheer has said, uh, not that it necessarily matters anymore, but he has said that uh, he wanted to go back to the old model. We don't know what his successor will want, but presumably they will want something broadly similar. The New Democrats, although this may matter the same amount, uh, want to undo the Senate altogether through, I would imagine, magic. Um, the Liberals want to continue with what's been started by the Prime Minister in, in, the, in the Liberal government. Um, can the reforms last? Will they last? How long will it take for them to set? Well, let me start by saying that the best thing Stephen Harper did for the Senate was not uh, in not filling the seats, it was to send the reference to the Supreme Court. Mm. I think that was outstanding. And, and we owe him a huge debt in essentially um, creating the foundations for what Mr. Trudeau then had to just walk through, which is to you know take the advice of the Supreme Court. So kudos to Prime Minister Harper, even though that was not his intent. Uh, and, and I mean that sincerely, and in the long view of history, may, maybe he will get some credit for it. I don't know. But uh, really, the Supreme Court reference is foundational to what we're seeing here, which is why I don't think the future of the Senate can be reversed in any simple way. Uh, because the Supreme Court reference also talks about how difficult it is, of course, to you know, abolish this way out there, but even to change the numbers of uh, senators uh, and to change the composition and have them elected, all of that stuff is very difficult to do. So I think we are what we are seeing in the Senate today with the new appointment process and with the appointment of senators as non-affiliated members is really, I don't want to say as far as we can do, can go from, from, the, from the government perspective, but it's gone a long way. It's really a very radical move, which the public supports. Now, we're very conscious as senators that we continuously have to win the support and confidence of 
the Canadian public. I'm very conscious I'm from British Columbia. The Senate is not exactly the most popular institution. And that makes us work harder and to demonstrate why we create value for the Senate. And it's creating value, it's not in defeating government bills willy-nilly. It's not in opposing bills for the sake of opposing bills. It has to be about trying to add value to legislation through deliberation and debate and investigation. As long as we focus on that, regardless of whether you're an ISG member or a CSG member or a PSG member, if you take that independent, non-partisan, non-caucus-link approach to work, I think we will gain the support of the public. Only two points. I believe that the Senate, the future of the Senate is not with elected senators. And second point, I believe that the Senate cannot afford another governance scandal, like the Duffy scandal uh, and others. So I believe that we will have to be exemplary in our governance. Well, thank you. I mean, the good news, Senator Wu, is that British Columbians will be so preoccupied with figure out, figuring out ride-hailing for the next couple of years that they won't have any time to, to devote to thinking about the Senate. Uh, they're going to be sorting through um, uh, uh, civil tickets in Surrey for the next couple of years. I'm I mentioned. trouble getting my ride share. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so we have our first question. My question is that you talk about partisanship. The ISG as a group forming together is partisan. There is a definition of partisan. It's not linked to a political party, but coming together is partisan. Um, I think that accountability can be used to tie it to the government of the day. And I look at Lynn Bayak as an example. When her caucus decided to remove her, the public woke up, the conservative public woke up. So my question is, who are you accountable to as an independent senator and how? Let me start by responding to your question about the ISG being by definition partisan. I will only concede to that in one sense. If you stretch the term partisan, I would say we are partisan in our belief in the need for less partisan, more independent Senate, and in the right of all our members to vote independently. We are ultra-partisan in that sense. But I think most people will recognize that that's not a conventional definition of partisan. By partisan, I mean political partisanship. And we are certainly not that. You only have to take a quick look, glance at our membership to see that there are very different political philosophies and views. On the issue of accountability, well, well, accountability to the office, the office, the oath that we saw. And this involves, it's a very solemn oath to uh, take our job uh, very seriously, to review government bills, to deliberate, to uh, respond to the needs of our constituencies, and to do it in a way that uh, corresponds to the backgrounds that we bring to the Senate rather than to the instructions of a whip or to the platforms of a political party. And if you might be suggesting that it would be more accountable that a senator is loyal to a party platform than for a senator to be true to his or her uh, expertise and knowledge and training, I would disagree with that. Uh, Mr. Wu, how, how, do, how do you think you could um, um, organize a group uh, to pay, for example, attention, uh, pay attention to these issues 
that could be uh, interpreted as part, you know, as, as, as always supporting the government while letting them to vote and um, address issues uh, uh, of Senate business according to their own values and expertise and so on, right? Well, quick answer. First of all, I have no power over my members to tell them how to vote, and we, but we have vigorous discussions and everybody jumps in with their views. And we are very proud that we are able to have these frank discussions, which uh, conclude with without a collective view on how to vote, and people go off and make their own decisions. But I would just go back to what I've said probably too many times already, which is that you cannot measure the success of the Senate simply by how we individual senators vote at the end of the process. And in your case, you're talking about the end of the process in terms of whether the government's insisting on its... Uh, uh, whether we are insisting on our amendments. I don't think that's the right measure because we have a constitutional responsibility as a complementary house to the chamber to keep that in our minds when we think about whether we want to insist on amendments or not. I would rather focus on what you had said, the work of the committees, asking the tough questions, proposing the amendments, talking to the public, to the media, and generally speaking, improving awareness of the issues around a bill rather than simply on how we vote. It's worth, I mean, this is something I've thought about a lot. It's worth doing a thought experiment, and Senator Wu sort of got a little bit towards this earlier. Um, imagine a world in which you were saying oh, the Senate um, is, the Senate votes with the government all the time, is a critique. Imagine the counter critique of the Senate never votes with the government. Is that better? I mean, I'm, I, I'm asking that of folks. Uh, earnestly, um, and if the answer is no, then my pushback is, well, what do you want? Yeah. Not that I would editorialize. I'm angling for a Senate appointment. <laughs> Actually, I'm lucky they let me in the building. Is that Paul back there? Yes. Uh, hi, I'm Paul uh, from the Samara Center for Democracy. Uh, we've done research looking at the performance of the last parliament, and one of the surprising statistics was that the average senator has a much better chance of having a private member's bill passed than the average MP. Many MPs don't even have a chance to have one debated. In the last two parliaments, Senator Runciman has passed three. So in the question of the deference from the Senate to the House of Commons, to what extent do you also need to account for the stature and the political influence of individual senators relative to individual MPs, given that at present, in terms of moving amendments or introducing private members' bill, the average senator is punching well above the weight of the typical MP. Shall I start, uh, Raymond? Um, I haven't thought very much about this, but the first observation is that the, um, the statistic on the greater likelihood of a private member, member's bill getting through in a Senate is true of the Senate always, just simply because of the math and the way in which private member's bills are introduced. It's a ballot process, right, in the House, and if you're unlucky to not have your private member's bill in the House selected, then too bad. Whereas uh, in the Senate, you can always get your private member's bill on the order paper, uh, it really is just a question of whether it comes uh, to to a vote. Um, there clearly is a role for private members' bills, and we've seen some very good ones in recent years, many of them coming from the Senate, and very proud to be associated with them. But I think as the Senate matures, and as we have perhaps more private members' bills, given the uh, more independent character of the Senate, you know, many of my members, I think, are contemplating private members' bills, 
as an institution, collectively, we will have to think about how we prioritize our time. And I referred earlier to the need for a programming committee, which would do precisely that. Uh, it would help us see the trajectory of particularly government bills that are coming to us and organizing, organizing ourselves so that we make sure we have uh, adequate time to fully debate government bills and not run the risk of some pet project, private bills, getting in the way or distracting or deflecting us from our primary work. And that means senators also have to be more um, discerning and choosy about uh, either the private members' bills that they initiate and support uh, or tougher sometimes on their own colleagues' private members' bills, either because really we don't have time to deal with them, there's other important work, or because the private bill members' bills themselves don't meet the test. If we, ex if we exercise extraordinary discipline, we can sneak in three more questions. Hi, I'm uh, Jeff Smith. I'm a not illegal lobbyist with the Mining Association of Canada. And uh, we had lots of experience in the Senate in the last parliament. And my question revolves a little bit around that experience, specifically at the Energy Committee on Bill C-69. Are some of the reforms being considered, could they include enhancing capacity on the committee clerk administration side, in addition to kind of the senators' research offices and the group's uh, staff, and I think as an as a additional element, could be that that provides a bit of separation between those who would criticize. They're just giving themselves more office budget, et cetera, et cetera. But we saw in 69 that there was a swamping of amendments that the, the committee staff could just couldn't handle. They weren't sleeping, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wonder whether there'd been that uh, thought. And another little piece was Senator Wood, Senators like yourself did not come from a political background, but in, in that same piece of legislation were thrust into a highly political situation, just, you know, how did you kind of deal with, with your role as, as it is laid out in the fact that that became a highly politicized process and just some reflections on that in particular? Thanks. I think we need a separate two-hour session on Bill C-69. I have a, but, quite, I have a yeah. question. Would you tell us if but, you were an illegal lobbyist, though? <laughs> you specified. Well, I'll comment quickly. And first of all, I want to say that, uh, Jeff, because we, we interacted uh, uh, quite often on C69, but I will say that, you, you know, you reminded me of the challenge in lobbying that Senator Saint-Germain brought up because you represent the mining industry, which was pro-C69, broadly speaking, but your voice was drowned out by the by a factor of 10 from the oil and gas industry, which overlaps somewhat with the mining industry. And most of the public discourse about the unhappiness of industry over C69 focused on the oil and gas industry and said very little about the mining guys who liked it. And this is a problem that senators have to sort out because if, we, if they do what, you know, Senator Saint-Germain was, was lamenting, which is that they only get information from the people who approach them, and it will mean in this case lots and lots of oil and gas people, they will get a very distorted view. So the lobbying process is legal, it's necessary, it's helpful, but it's really the responsibility of the senators to manage how they collect information and make sure that 
they are hearing from substantial voices in Canadian society, in this case the mining industry, that was really drowned out by another group. And, and in a similar vein on your point concerning the capacity of uh, our clerks and administrative staff, I, I really admire and respect our Senate administration for how hard they work and the pressures that we put on them. But that's the key. We put the pressures on them. And I agree we need to increase the capacity, make sure they have enough staff, budget, and all of that stuff. But ultimately, if we overburden them because we are irresponsible with our amendments, if we say we want to dump 300 amendments on a bill that are, let's face it, politically motivated or out to score points, we are responsible for burdening them for work that they really shouldn't have to do, but they will do it anyway because they're loyal workers of the Senate. So I think it does come back to responsibility on the part of senators to to be prudent and to think about what they're doing and the implications, not just for the bill, but for the staff who work for them. Of course, the challenge is Canadians are famously cheap. We don't want to pay for anything like proper administration or repairs to the crumbling official residence of the Prime Minister. All right. Have we got yeah, yeah. one question? Thank you. Am I, am I on? Yeah. Uh, this has been a fabulous presentation this morning. Thank you very much. I just have a question about the, the planning that you're, you're picturing improving for the Senate and wanting to start by just saying that, for example, the studies the Senate has done over the years have been, I think, one of the great secrets in Canada. There's some brilliant things being done and drawn upon year after year. I'm just thinking, for example, of soil at risk in the 80s, which was a brilliant study. And I don't know how else it could have been done. So in the future planning process, you may already have things on the board. Climate change is a huge thing facing humanity. And Canada ought to be out there out front, being a leader and a very philosophically sound player. What kind of opportunities do you have looking at the forward plans to work in these areas? Senator, Senator? Well, uh, let me start quickly because I was on the Environment Committee and I was involved in a major study that we undertook on what we call decarbonizing the Canadian economy. And I'm very disappointed that we were not able to bring that to a conclusion. Um, how do I choose my words carefully? Because um, some people did not want the report to, to be released. And uh, that really meant that three years' work or more did not see the light of day. Um, I, I have to believe that this was in part, at least in part, motivated by electoral calculations because we were on the eve of an election. And this is, I think, yet another argument for why senators who first of all, don't have to worry about election, but also not part of a party that has to worry about election, can do better. So I hope we can revisit the issue of climate change and uh, do some more work in the area, maybe revive the previous study. But there's another thing that we can do, and I, I'm just throwing the idea out because it's been raised with me uh, very recently, but we can look at our own carbon footprint in the Senate. I mean, I don't know how we would go about doing it. There are methodologies, but is there a way we can reduce our carbon footprint as an institution? 
And if we can do so, then it goes well beyond doing a study. It goes to the level of how we're trying to set an example. And, and this gets to Senator Sanjaman's point. You know, we have to be not only exemplary, but we also have to, to lead in some ways. And this could be an area. I like this question. It's a very interesting one because uh, it uh, highlights the role of Senate committees. It's not only to study government bills. Uh, we need to work also on private bills or, in, and, or Senate bills. And at the same time, we need to be very aware and concerned by the contemporary issues. Climate change uh, is one of the contemporary issues. There are others. And for that, we need the expertise of senators. And the diversity of expertise in the Senate is really impressive. And it is also a, a well-kept secret. So we will need to encourage all committees and the leadership of committees to be more proactive uh, for addressing and, uh, these issues and recommending solutions for tackling what has to be tackled. So thank you for the question. It's, uh, it's almost an instruction for us and we will uh, be accountable to you. Is that, is that it? Well, uh, to put it in terms of, do we have time for one more? What it, no, we don't. We do. We do. We have one final question because someone has a microphone in his hand. But no pressure. You've got 15 seconds. Uh, thank you for the time. Um, thank you, for Senators, for your talk today. Uh, my question is with regards to Senator Hugh Siegel's and Mike Kirby's report, uh, A House Undivided, where they strongly argue that many of the governance problems the Senate now faces as a independent, uh, newly independent chamber or released from partisanship chamber can be found in the UK House of Lords where they have governors and deputy governors as uh, conveners of uh, their various groupings. I'm wondering to what degree do you find that model workable and if so, to, uh, to what extent do you hope to apply it in, as the Senate evolves? Thank you. Um, for those of you who have not read House uh, Undivided, you should know that uh, Senator Siegel, former Senator Siegel and uh, Kirby were very strongly supportive of the more independent Senate. I mean, you know that, but uh, you may have given the impression that they were criticizing the more independent. They weren't. In what they did instead was to propose uh, some ideas on how to organize a Senate that was uh, made up of non-affiliated senators. And their main recommendation actually was the one you had mentioned, which is to organize along regional lines, which I generally don't favor. You know, I really haven't thought about that very specific question. All I would say is that the House of Lords is not exactly the best model these days. Uh, I understand they're moving to York. Um, have you heard that? Uh, Boris Johnson has uh, suggested that when, when the Westminster Palace uh, goes into renovation, they move the House of Lords up north. Uh, and uh, there are many other dysfunctional elements of the House of Lords, so uh, I'll be happy to take a closer look at what you specifically mentioned from that report. Uh, but for sure, uh, we are in the Canadian Senate breaking a path that other countries are looking at, including the Lords. There is no other upper house with as much power as we have that is moving to a model of independent senators. And um, I'm very proud of that. And in some ways, we have to look at what has not yet been done anywhere rather than simply look at the models of the past. 
I only take this opportunity to stress on the fact that you Siegel was an excellent conservative senator. Yeah. <laughs> well, to put it in Senate terms, we have unfortunately reached our 75th birthday and it's time for us to retire. So thank you uh, very much to uh, Senator Wu and to Senator Saint-Germain and each and every one of us, uh, one of us in the room <laughs> for being here today to listen to them. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I'm, I'm going to... I'm stepping in mostly to uh, also include David in our thanks. Thank you very much, David, for moderating. Thank you very much for coming out. Um, If you haven't seen, we've actually announced our entire agenda for the year. So uh, if you'd like to know what else we're doing this year and get involved, you can go to canada2020.ca slash our year. Why our year? Well, it's 2020. So uh, I would encourage you to take a look, uh, give us some feedback, uh, offer to volunteer, offer to speak at one of our events, uh, let us know what we're missing. Um, And then one more uh, thanks to our partners for making events like this happen. And then another round of applause and thanks to Senator Saint-Germain and Senator Wu for giving us your time today. Thank you very much. A fascinating discussion. uh, And thank you very much for coming. Thanks.